going to read God's Word now, and we're reading this morning from the fourth chapter of Daniel, from, from verse, the first verses 1 to 8, and then from verses 28 onwards. So let's hear God's Word as we pick up the story of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and the visions that passed before my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought to me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And then the king tells Daniel the dream, and we pick up the story at verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, that's Daniel, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree that you saw in your dream grew large and strong, and its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit producing for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. But your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, come down from heaven and say, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. and Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And it may be that your prosperity will continue. 
All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives it to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from all the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom rules from generation to generation. All the people are like grass, are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold him back and say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the God of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we contemplate today this reading of your word, that you would speak to our hearts and in our time. Amen. Can I just, first of all, say, what a great story, isn't it? Sometimes we just forget, because we, we, we stick to the same bits of the Bible, just how fantastic, how wonderful, how encouraging word of God is. And I can I encourage you if, you, if you, if you've got out of the way of reading God's word, go and read the first six chapters of Daniel. It gets quite hard at chapter seven, but the first six chapters, some of it you'll remember from Sunday school and other bits of it will be perhaps new to you. We're met here with King Nebuchadnezzar and he's king of the world. He's big in politics. He's big in warfare. He's big in architecture. He's made this mighty city with huge gates. He's even big in horticulture. Have you heard of the Hanging Garden of Babylon? He did that. He's king of the world. And there's two things here. The first lesson of it is perhaps very simple. A powerful man who rules the world, who's taken it into his hands, who's destroyed Jerusalem, who's taken God's people into exile, who seems to be strutting the stage like anything. The book of Daniel comes and says, he is not more powerful than God. 
And whatever we fear, whatever's happening in our own day, whatever's happening down through the ages after empire after empire, problem after problem, injustice after injustice, God's word is constantly telling us and reminding us our God is sovereign over the whole world. Nothing happens except by his will. Back in chapter 2, we had Daniel saying, God holds the times and the seasons. But in chapter 4, even Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked godless king, has to say, all people of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases. I'm not powerful compared to him. This is hugely significant. We have to remember that this, this book of Daniel is written among a people who are completely oppressed. They've had all their control taken away from them. They've been taken into exile. They're trying to work out how do you live when you've lost everything? How do you live where you don't want to be? How do you live when the things you'd hoped for, the things you'd dreamed of, the things you'd thought were going to happen are all taken away and all you've got left is God? So this book is, is a great comfort to people who are persecuted down through the ages. And, and, and for us in the church where we feel sometimes weak, when we feel sometimes that godless powers are, are in charge of everything and we, we feel like a minority, maybe the book of Daniel is, is a comfort to us as we try to work out how we live there by reminding us that the God that we worship is in control. Very simple theology. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know, we sang it from Sunday school. That simple truth. But there's more to it than that. Because we maybe missed it as we read it, but there's something almost shocking about this chapter. And that's this. It starts and it ends. Not with Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego giving testimony to God. It starts and it ends with Nebuchadnezzar speaking himself. The story of what God had done in his life. And this is really, really significant. Because what it's saying to us is this. Even this godless tyrant, this man who has destroyed God's holy city, taken his people into exile, crushed everything that seemed to matter to them, even this guy... God cares about him. God wants him to know him. God wants him to acknowledge him. God wants him to realize that he gave him everything. So here's Daniel. Looking at Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who threw his friends into a fiery furnace. The guy who's, who, who's, who, who's trying to eradicate the very person he is. He's given him a, another name of another God. He's trying to wipe out his identity, his faith, everything. He's destroyed his city. And here's Daniel, and he is learning through what this is all about, that God actually cares for Nebuchadnezzar too. By the way, this is the same story that Jonah had to learn. You know, there's all these enemies up there in Nineveh, and Jonah thought, that's great. I can prophesy that God's going to blow them all out of the air. Keep us safe. <laughs> what did God say? No, I want you to go and preach the gospel to them because I actually want them to repent because I love them and care about them. Did Jonah's head in? This is an utterly transforming thought for all of us. 
God loves the people that we hate. I, I, um, I was struck when we, in the last years, I, um, where Donald Trump was president, and I don't get political, but I think we can agree he wasn't a good guy. Is that all right? Is that not too controversial, is it? But I was struck as, as lots of Christians are posting things on social media about how awful Donald Trump is and all the awful things he's done by this strange thought. God loves Donald Trump. In fact, my gospel tells me that God loves Donald Trump as much as he loves me. My gospel tells me that Jesus Christ died for Donald Trump, that God would have sent his son into the world to save, even if it had only been Donald Trump. Now, that is a huge thought. God cares, loves, grieves for the Taliban fighter in his lostness. God cares for the victims and the oppressed, but he also cares for the oppressor. The bully that's making your life a misery, God loves them. Now, that changes everything. Because it means that we are not just coming and saying, God, help me, save me from all these other people. It means we're actually coming and saying, God, will you transform this world? why the gospel at its heart says we need to forgive as we have been forgiven, that we need to show the grace, that we need to love the enemy. And that begins to change everything. We're not just another group of people who are feeling oppressed, saying, deal with the oppressors. We're actually looking at a God whose love goes on and on and on. God says to me, if you love me, you will love the people I love you will see my image in them as broken as it is. You will recognize that I was willing to send my son for them. What are you willing to do to see them changed and transformed? This is mind-blowing stuff. It is not enough for us to say today, Lord, please save the church from that awful godless world out there and give us people in our church so that our church can keep going. That's not what we're about. We're about saying, Lord, you have delivered us, you have saved us, you have given us your love, and we want to share it with people who don't seem interested because you love them too. You care for them as well. Anyway, back to the story. Nebuchadnezzar has got it all. There he is in this palace, this palace that he's built, the beauty of Babylon, this amazing city, standing over it, and what does he say? I was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. And then he has a dream which terrifies him. It absolutely terrifies him. And what a dream it is. It's a dream in which he loses everything, not just his palace, but he loses everybody's respect, and in fact, he loses his mind. That's the dream. And he's absolutely terrified by it. Now, I wonder, do you ever have sleepless nights? Those places where you, you wake up in the middle of the night and you are worried. And maybe you're worried about what people are saying. Or maybe you're worried about your job. 
Or maybe you're worried about your finances or your health or, 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 or your money or, or, or whatever it is that you're, you're worried about. You're worried about your family. And we might look at someone like Nebuchadnezzar and say, well, you know what? Here's Mr. Successful. What's he got to be worried about? He wants it. He gets it. But here's the reality. Every single human being has within them that deep anxiety. That deep anxiety that I could lose everything I have, but more than that, my, that deep anxiety, even if I had everything I wanted, it wouldn't satisfy my soul. I need more than that. The gospel says to us, it fills in that hole, doesn't it? It says that peace that you desire in your soul. That peace isn't going to come from any of these things or any of these securities. It's going to come when you know who God is. When you know who you are, why you were made. When you know that you're loved, when you know that you have a because he's given you a significance. Jesus said, I come that you might have peace. Here is my peace, a peace that the world cannot give you. Nebuchadnezzar had already seen bits of this. You know, we led in the previous chapter when he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire and he saw that angelic figure, that God figure, that son of God moving around in the fire there. And he said at that point, you're the only God. You're the only one that can save people from fires. He was right. But here's the problem for Nebuchadnezzar. Even when he saw that, he didn't bow the knee. He was still full of pride. And that's really what this passage is all about. Verse 30 sums it up, where it says this. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my glory and power and the glory of my majesty? Now here's a king strutting his stuff, looking at all he's made and saying, I did that, look at me. The thing is, every human being does that at times, don't we? Look at what I've achieved. Look at the children I've brought up. Look at the things I've done. And the pride slips in again, and we are tempted to say, I did that. That was me. Pride. The problem with pride is, and, and, and it's, it's lovely, it's so well illustrated here, because Nebuchadnezzar is looking from the roof down on the world. And that's the problem with pride. It ends up with you looking down at things. Never up. Never up to realize where you are before the living God. Pride looks at all the achievements, all the work, all the things it's done and says, I did that. I'm always struck by the fact that today the most famous theologian is not John Knox or Calvin or Luther it's Frank Sinatra. I did it my way is the course of our being. Me. I'll decide what's right and wrong. Yeah, see, the Bible says that, but I don't think so. I decide. And the thing is, God hates pride, and, and he hates it for, for a very simple reason. It's stupid. I can look at my own life and I can say, look at what I've achieved. I, you know, I, I've got a good education. I've got some degrees. I've got 
nice children. I've got, you know, I, these things that, that I've managed to do. I've got a job that matters. I've got people that, that respect me. I, look at all the things I have done. But here's the reality of it. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose my race, my gender, my color. I didn't choose my appearance. I didn't choose my IQ level. I didn't choose my wonderful looks. Okay. Yeah, that's obvious, but yeah. I didn't choose where I was born. What if I'd been born in Afghanistan? Then would I have achieved these things? What if I had been born in 1460 in the middle of a plague? What if I'd been born a black woman in the deep south in the 1840s? I didn't choose any of that. So when we look at all that we have done, we have to stop and say, Get the point? And then there's the other ways that some of us would say, well, I'm not proud. In fact, I've achieved nothing in my life and I can list all the things I'm rubbish at and, you know, I'm not proud, I'm humble. But see, here's the trouble with that is that it's still about me, isn't it? It, it? it becomes, I'm worth more than I got. That's why I've got a big chip in my shoulder because I deserve better than I got in life. I earned better. I should have had better than I've been achieving in my life. And that, in its own ways, is pride as well. You see, the opposite of pride isn't to go around like Scots do. I'm not proud, I'm useless. It's still me saying what is the truth. The opposite of pride is humility. And humility isn't about recognizing you're useless. Actually, humility is about recognizing that everything that you have, the things that you genuinely are good at, the gifts and abilities you have, they're all a gift. They're given to you by God and being grateful for them. You have got talents. You have got things you can do. You have got things you contribute. But by the way, that's not because you're wonderful. That's because God is wonderful. And therefore, you give the glory and the honor to him. You don't look down and say, well, I'm better than them. Because that's what we always do. We might think we're rubbish, but I'm better than him. That's why we are so morally, we condemn things all the time because it's making us feel better. At least I'm not like them. I don't use bad language. I don't do that. You know, you know what I mean? You always pick something that you do. Humility is where we look up. And we say, I am where I am because God is great. And I'm not where I should be because God is even bigger than all of that. And so I give worship and glory to God. And in the end, that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Verse 34. I raised my eyes. Look, he's looking up now, not down. And my sanity was restored, and I praised, and I glorified him. Not my glory, his. Suddenly, the whole prospect, the whole place is different. He recognizes that God in his mercy comes to teach him the truth of who he is as a person that's been created and now a person that God has spoken to. And that is the ultimate truth of the gospel. You see, the gospel, first of all, comes and tells us we're sinners. And some people hate that because it's actually saying, you have not achieved, you have not, you have failed in so many ways. Face it. And then the gospel comes and says, but you are loved. Not because of all the wonderful things you've done, but because God is loved. And God has sent his son to die for you. And that's why time and time again, the, gospel, the, the New Testament writers, when they talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven and God's love in that state, and therefore all boasting is excluded. 
By the way, that means Christians cannot go around thinking we're better than everybody else. We're not. In fact, Christians should be the humblest people because we constantly are aware of our failure and need of forgiveness. That is true humility. What does Nebuchadnezzar learn then? Well, it's interesting that, that he loses his mind. His pride causes him to lose his mind. You see, our minds are supposed to help us recognize truth, reason. Recognize the truth of God. Recognize that we're made in His image. That's what it's all supposed to be about. And it's interesting, as human beings forget God, suddenly they become like animals. Because if God didn't make other human beings, then what value do they have? And it's interesting that as godlessness has increased, what have we seen? Breakdowns in families, a rise in selfishness, a, a displacement of human life, both at the beginning of life and now increasingly questions about life at the end, a lack of integrity in our politics. If I can get away with it, it doesn't matter because there's no God. And a very me-first individualism. And pride is corrosive of individuals, of relationships as well. You see, the problem with proud, proud people is they cannot see other folk. They just see them as people to be used. Now, it's interesting, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, the problem with that is it's absolute garbage. If you go to Babylon today, there's all the bricks, all the stones of, of this great city that Nebuchadnezzar left us. How many of those bricks did Nebuchadnezzar lay? None. Not one of them. Babylon was built by thousands of workers and slaves and artisans and craftsmen and a whole community of people. Nebuchadnezzar is not recognizing one single one of them there. And Babylon was built as a big thriving city where lots and lots and lots of people lived and married and prospered and had children and employment and all these other things. It wasn't all about him. But that's pride. It becomes all about me. And that's not just for great kings. That happens for us as well. You see, when we're, we're proud people, when we're at the center of things, suddenly all our relationships are, are, are distorted. So I look around and I think, do I want to know him? What will he give to me in that relationship? Will I enjoy spending time with that person? Will it make me feel good about myself? So even, uh, even in churches, sometimes we find ourselves looking around a group of people and we're thinking, who do I want? It's all about me. Rather than asking questions about, who can I bless? Because they matter become self-absorbed. It's the absolute opposite of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to wash feet, give his life. And we often say, well, I don't want to do that. It's not my thing. And I'm, I'm left saying at the heart of the gospel is Jesus who did the one thing he didn't want to do. He went to the cross for us because his love for us mattered more than his comfort than himself. That is true, true humility that changes it. 
I'm going to invite you later on to stay for tea and coffee in the grounds. We've got some marquees up so you'll not get too wet. Now, for some folk, that's physically not possible. I respect that. But can I just suggest that as we do that, the question isn't, is that something I'll enjoy or do I like tea or coffee? The question is, am I able to do that to encourage other people? To befriend, listen to other people in their need. You see, when we begin to realize what God has done for us and our hearts move in gratitude and worship, it begins to change how we relate to people. The solution, verse 34 has it, is that our eyes look to heaven. We see God and his plan. We see his grace for us in the gospel and it causes us to rejoice. That simple message of the gospel, I don't deserve anything except God's anger for all that I've done wrong. But I have meaning because what I have been given that I did not deserve was the death of Jesus on the cross for me. I grasped what I did not earn. He gave what he did earn. And it transformed everything. He took what I deserve and gave me the life that I could never earn and never deserve. And that is the new perspective that it is given. And we come and we worship and remind ourselves of that and let it transform us. And not only that, you see, pride goes, but at the same time, bitterness goes. Because we're not left looking at life saying, I deserve better than that. I should have been treated better than that. But rather, we're grateful for everything that God has given us, for everything that other people show us and the life that we've been given in the gospel. And by the way, that gives us generosity to others as well, because we realize, I didn't deserve this this gospel. And therefore, neither does Donald Trump. But you know, God loves him. Neither does the person that I'm, I'm struggling to relate to, but God loves them, and he gives them just like he gives me that hope and that good news in the gospel. It also allows us to be generous with what we've got. You know, um, treasurer will like me saying this. Nobody else will. But one of the principles in, in, in the Bible, it's not a rule, it's just a thought, is that Believers might tithe, give 10% of what they earn to God's work. Now, when I, every time I suggest that, I can feel a wince. Folks, why should I give 10% of all my hard-earned money that I've earned away? But you see, if I earned it and it's mine, then that's a good argument. But if I come at this a different way, if I say everything I have is a gift it transforms it. If I said to you, here is 10,000 pounds and it's a gift and you don't have to pay interest on it, you don't have to repay the capital, I'm only going to ask you to give away 10%. Suddenly that doesn't seem tough at all, does it? Now I'm not here to talk about 10%, that's not the point. The point is when we see life as a gift, we are able to be generous because we're not holding on. May this gospel, this good news, transform us, and may it put our hope in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing together, All My Hope.